Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 6,000 members worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. On this additional episode of the Dispatches podcast, I talk to amateur historian Ross Beadle about his research into the 10 command decisions he argues shaped the outcome of the initial German invasion of France in the opening months of 1914. This edition has been recorded to accompany an article written by Ross on this subject in the latest WFA bulletin, that is number 120, published in August-September 2021 for those who may be listening at a later date. This is one of two episodes. The story is really complex so we decided to split it across two editions. I spoke to Ross from his home in Oxfordshire. Well today on the podcast our guest is Ross Beadle, an amateur historian and mildly obsessive about anything connected with Alfred von Schlieffen and his eponymous plan. I have to say those are his words not necessarily mine. Ross welcome. (laughs) Um, yes, uh, the man himself may have died a, a year before the outbreak of war, but the spectre of Schlieffen hangs over the events we're going to discuss. So, Ross, the subject we are going to discuss today is the campaign that led to the decisive French victory on the Marne in August and September 1914 that thwarted the, the German search for a rapid victory in the West. And in particular, we're going to look at it through the prism of big decisions taken by the commanders of the French and German armies, although there is a walk on part of the British XA force. Yes, uh, I mean, there are many twists and turns in the four, work, four weeks uh, campaign that sort of started in the 80s ends with with Moltke issuing the order to retreat. Uh, There are two huge armies, roughly the same size. They countermarched, manoeuvred, marched and fought across Belgium and northern France. The German first army, uh, which was the most extreme case admittedly, went out, in, back out again and then retreated all in the course of four weeks. This was a real test of leadership, um, and not just by the supreme commanders, but also at, uh, at the next tier down. Ross, you settle on the question of leadership at the senior level as the key determinant, determinant of the outcome on the Marne, or at least the detailed shape of the outcome. In particular, you identify 10 key decisions that were the difference between two conceivable outcomes, a German victory or stagnation. Yeah, I mean, it's probable, let's face it, because the cycle is so evenly matched, um, that it would have ended in stagnation anyway, no matter what had happened. Um, um, but wh- how it, where it ended up, where it did, was down to the decisions that were taken uh, during the campaign. Uh, there were, I, you can identify 10 significant command decisions which significantly altered the course of events. Um, when you look at the other variables involved in the campaign on the Marne, the sides were basically evenly matched, hence the eventual stalemate. There was 1.6 million men on both sides. Roughly, the Germans had a slight advantage because at the outset, uh, they employed reservists in the front line. Uh, by the end of the war, at the end of that um, uh, the com- campaign, uh, that advantage had gone and the French had a small advantage. But basically, they were evenly matched. They were reasonably evenly matched um, in terms of artillery as well. Uh, the French had an advantage with their mobile artillery, the 75 cannon, 
The Germans had more heavy artillery, but they had some logistics problems to go with it. The French had a kind of naive to the point of suicidal operational doctrine for their infantry when they were on the attack. But actually, during most of the campaign, they were on the defensive anyway. Unlike their previous encounter in 1871, all of the basic mechanics of war sort of evened out. So it's not a, well, that's not a startlingly original idea. Um, the best way to frame this story is that leadership is the key variable. Things turned out as they did because commanders took decisions that they did, on, often on scanty information. And what you're left with is, is a, a very old-fashioned story, really, of the much derided sort of great man school. Um, this is a, a Franco-German story. Um, there are sort of 10 decisions which can be clearly identified. Six of them are German, three of them are by the French, and one of them is kind of Anglo-French. Um, and what we're going to do is split this story over two podcasts because it's, it's too much to do at one go without just driving it down to the most minimal version of the story. Um, so we take it up to the fourth decision, which was when Joffre ordered a, the French to make a stand, or French Fifth Army, to make a stand at Guise. And then in the second podcast, um, we'll deal with the whole pell-mell of decision-making that took place in the run-up to and the actual battle itself on the Marne. And hopefully both of these sort of episodes will last about 45 minutes. So let's start with some background. Who were the key senior players on both sides making these 10 decisions? Let's start with the Germans. Well, we have to restrict lists, obviously, to the men who appear, this is for prelim anyway, to the men who appear most frequently. First of all, there were an awful lot of Voms. Uh, they were very aristocratic uh, leadership. Uh, eight out of the 10 people whose names appear over the course of the next two podcasts were Voms, something or other. I'm going to eliminate, as far as I can remember possible as I go along, the Von bit, uh, which makes sometimes otherwise the names all just um, roll into one another and you're not quite sure who it is. The German commander, as is well known, was Helmut von Moltke. He, he was uh, the nephew of Helmut von Gol Moltke the Elder, who'd been the successful commander in 1871. Um, and as this whole talk is about uh, leadership, we have to consider Moltke's management style. Uh, he was following what was an established Prussian tradition, inherited from his uncle, the elder Moltke, um, whereby the um, supreme commander actually delegated a lot of authority down to the senior commanders in the field. He set them goals and set them targets, but the commanders were relatively free to implement as they saw fit. So it was kind of arm's length uh, style of management. The problem is that if you lose control, uh, as Molka was to, then it can appear weak. Now, in 1871, his uncle had also lost control on several occasions. But because his pre-planning had got him a three-to-one material advantage and a clear firepower advantage that he had through his artillery, the elder Molka was able to uh, achieve a victory. In 1914, Molka the Younger had no numerical advantage to speak of at all in terms of troops and none at all in firepower. And all that did was expose the weaknesses of this kind of delegated control um, way of managing a campaign. Uh, there were seven German armies, all told, uh, starting with the, the seventh over in Alsace, to the first being the one that's 
uh, most westerly, most into Belgium, if you like. Four of these armies uh, concern us in particular. The three on the right, uh, the first, second and third, are commanded by three gents called Kluck, Bulo and Hausen, of which you'll hear quite a lot. But within uh, these three, uh, Bulov had a coordinating role. Uh, he was the senior man, and the other two at the outset of the campaign had to uh, were under his control. Uh, that was mainly to manage the very difficult process of squeezing these armies through the narrow gap between the Dutch border and Liège. Um, now, Bulo uh, was a, a warrior rather than a warrior, and rather prone to ill-thought-out panicky decisions, as we shall see. Two other factors to just bear in mind. One is that Hausen, in command of the Third Army, um, was a Saxon, not a Prussian. And there are sort of, after the war anyway, accusations that he was too deferential to the Prussians. And had he stuck to his original orders, he, uh, the, the campaign might have actually done better. And the third thing to say is they were all pretty old guys. They're all, I think the youngest is 65 and the oldest is 69. And this was a particularly exhausting campaign in which on both sides, uh, a number of senior officers, you know, health broke down in the course of four weeks. Out on the German left, there's the other army we need to consider, which is the sixth army in Lorraine. Uh, it was actually based in the bit of Lorraine that the Germans had nicked in 1871, and which they sort of euphemistically called the independent territories. Um, the army in Lorraine was largely Bavarian, the sixth army, commanded by Crown Prince uh, Ruprecht of Bavaria. Now, the Germans operated a system of dual control where you had a commander and also a very powerful chief of staff. It was universal to all armies, but it was specifically designed for those armies where there was a senior personage in control, nominally in control, like the Crown Prince, um, but actually the actual decision-making was done by the chief of staff. He ran the show. Uh, this duality was, again, um, a Prussian tradition, and you can see it again in the kind of duality with Hindenburg and Ludendorff later in the war. The thing was, Crown Prince Ruprecht did have serious pretensions to being a proper soldier. Despite that, the Bavarian Sixth Army Chief of Staff was also a powerful figure and very ambitious, uh, the splendidly named Konrad Kraft von Delmensingen. So that's the Germans. What about the French? Well. It's a reflection of um, how that much more centralised the French were, which will come as no surprise to people who know French society in general, that it was dominated by one figure, their commander-in-chief, Joseph Joffre. Joffre actually had been a compromised choice when he was selected. Um, the vast majority of commanders in the French army were Catholic and conservative. And on the other hand, the government in the post Dreyfus age was predominantly secular and republican. So finding a, a soldier who suited the politicians was quite difficult. Joffre was not a secular republican. He was sort of somewhere in the middle between the two sides, but was accepted to both sides. His background was, was more as an engineer and in railways, although that uh, knowledge of railways came in very handy at a key point in the campaign. Apart from Joffre, the only other general who gets a sort of a lot of mentions who we need to, to just be up on is a chap called Charles Lorzak, who was in charge of the Fifth Army. That's the one out on the left, um, sort of um, 
facing the German first army, sort of as, as west as west as you could be. Um, Lorzak was um, a pessimistic Cassandra, continually predicting difficulty, often with good reason. Um, but he was much admired by Joffre because his lectures at the Ecole de Guerre were noted for how, how brilliant they were. Um, others uh, were instantly sacked by Joffre for showing the degree of pessimism that Lorzak was to show. Uh, and eventually, uh, Joffre's patience was to run out. We've dealt with the individuals who are in command. What were their respective plans? What did the Germans plan? What did the French plan for the outbreak of war? Well, this is a separate lecture in itself, I have to say, because the war planning before the, before the First World was, was such a monumental thing on both sides, of conflicts on both sides. And as the world and its mother knows, Moltke was following the broad outline of his famous predecessor, Schlieffen. He was seeking to envelop the French with a strong right wing invading Belgium, coming round the back and destroying the uh, French army from the side. Three armies would do this job for him. They would go enter Belgium via Liège and then Brussels before turning south to cross the border around Chauvois uh, and the River Sombre and the River Meuse. In the meantime, while that was going on, the armies on the centre and left their job was to grip and hold as much of the French army as possible to allow a greater freedom of manoeuvre for the three armies that were on the right. It was a big right wheel and enveloped. Everybody knew the Germans were going to do something like this. The Germans, but the Germans themselves knew it was a gamble. Jack Snyder, historian of, of pre-war planning, wrote to the Germans, in the search for an elusive formula for decisive victory, it was a case of the necessary being possible. What was less well known was firstly just how far west the Germans would go. In particular, they were going to go further west than the Meuse Valley. This is the valley that runs north-south from the Belgian border to Verdun. Um, they were going to go much further west than that. Um, secondly, that Moltke envisaged that the French would be drawn forward by the German invasion and anyway would have an offensive strategy. And that was because since Schlieffen had retired, the French strategic outlook had changed from being quite a defensive one to being a much more offensive. And the outcome of that would be that the decisive battles, in Moltke's view, would be fought much further north than anticipated by his predecessor. They would be around the Belgian border, somewhere around Shawa. And this was the first sort of, if you like, tinkering at the edges with the formula he, was, he inherited from Schlieffen. So what were the French plans? French plans uh, were equally common. Um, uh, they both got, uh, the Germans had spies in, in, the, in the French camp, actually. Uh, and their only problem was they could never make out whether it was genuine intelligence or, or they were being fed fibs. Um, so, but even so, they were pretty certain about what uh, French uh, plans were. Um, the French were going to attack Concentrate. They changed their strategy, as I've said. They were going to be attacking, definitely attacking, um, and the the centre of that attack was going to be around Lorraine. And um, this was a, a recent change initiated specifically by by Joffre. Uh, the previous strategy had been what was known as defensive offensive, um, and that had been the French preference pretty much since 1871, uh, and was driven by. Uh, 
a perception that the French had numerical inferiority. They had 35 million people, the Germans had 65 million people. So for much of the time after 1871, the French strategy was you defended initially against the German thrust, and then you counterattacked. Um, that was changed. But ironically, of course, in the end, that's exactly what the French did. They defended and, offend, and then took the offensive. Um, the French armies, as I've mentioned already, went from the first army over on the far right in Alsace to the fifth army, Lomrezac, over in the west. Um, and to the left of the uh, French fifth army was the BEF, who were concentrating around Maubeuge on the Belgian border. So first off, for the first big decision of the campaign, we begin on the eastern flank with the Bavarians in Lorraine, and not, as you might expect, in Liège. Yes, that's exactly right. Surely, surely delay in capturing Liège was fundamental to the failure of the German strategy. Was the failure to capture Liège really a key decision? That's the question. Well, actually, no, it wasn't. After the war, the Germans uh, considered the delay in, they had in capturing Liège at the outset relatively unimportant, although that might have been a case of them saying, well, you know, we messed it up, uh, but we don't want to admit it. But by and large, the German opinion after the war discounted any delay in uh, taking it. Certainly, Moltke wanted to capture the forts of Liège very, very quickly, inside two days, because he needed to squeeze two or three, almost three armies, through that narrow gap. Um, in fact, there's an argument that Liège's significance is much more as a cause of the war than in the war itself, because in those days before the war, Moltke was pressuring the, the Kaiser to kick off the war straight away because he needed to capture Liège. But actually, when it came to the war itself, it maybe was not as important as we think. Uh, one of the two main historians of the of the campaign, Chapel Seymour Ting, writing in the 1930s, calculated that it cost the Germans about 48 to 72 hours. That was because the army wasn't fully assembled until uh, the 13th of August, because they had to bring all their horses across from Prussia and trains. And Liège finally fell on the 16th. So it's a two or three day delay. And let's face it, you know, Schlieffen talked about a campaign of lasting 42 days. If it had been 44 or 45 days, did that matter? Did the German soldiers turn into pumpkins? No, they didn't. So Liège in the end was not a fundamental decision. Um, Gary Shepard has made a case that the sort of plucky Belgian defence gave the BEF a chance to assemble, in which case Liège maybe affected the survival of the BEF, but that didn't necessarily affect the outcome on the Marne, because actually the BEF's role in the Marne was fairly minor. I have a sneaky theory that we've always bigged up the significance of Belgian resistance at the age, mainly because, or partly because, uh, we were going to war to defend their independence, and we kind of needed the people who were, we were seeking to defend to be plucky in their own defence if we were to go and help them. But that's a mere cynical opinion. Um, Just one sidetrack. Why didn't the Germans invade Holland as they did in the Second World War? Um, there's two reasons, three reasons. Schlieffen was a very much a, a chap who did campaigns on maps. And if the map said uh, you need to go through Holland, then he'd go through Holland. And he, but he didn't take any political considerations in mind. The idea of going through Holland was because his army got big, uh, so big, he needed the road space. And so he just said, I'm going through Holland. 
it was never kind of central to the, the proposition. He kind of ran out of space. Moltke looked at this and thought, I'm not sure this is a terribly good idea. Um, and it was for three reasons. Firstly, in his soul of soul, Moltke suspected it was going to be a long war. He thought it was always a gamble and there was a fairly good chance it would be a long war. And he didn't fancy having to defend the coastline of Holland. Uh, and you can imagine how that would have affected the outcome of the First World War if, it had, if the Western Front had extended that far, because the British Navy would have been operating continually against the Dutch coastline and causing them problems. So, so Moltke did the Germans actually an enormous favour in not occupying Holland. The other reason was that in a, in a war that was tightly balanced in terms of the troops on either side, Another 250,000 Dutch troops was not desperately uh, going to help his, the balance of his forces. As it was, his campaign was continually weakened by having to siphon off troops to deal with pockets of resistance as he went along. Had he got to deal with the Dutch as well, he would have um, even had even more of that. So in the end, Mokka opted out of going to through Holland. But that what it caused was this need, that what that led to was the need to capture Liège because... Uh, Liège was completely unimportant to Schlieffen. It was just another town on the way. Suddenly, it became this funnel. Um, and so that was the coup de main on Liège was Moltke's big addition to strategy before the war. I'm sorry we've digressed to Holland, but what was happening further south with the Bavarians in Lorraine? Yes, let's go back to Lorraine, which is actually the first key. Much as I'd love to talk forever about the Schlieffen plan, I will continue with the subject in hand. Back to the Bavarians in Lorraine and the first key decision. So the first key decision is not actually a decision. It was a non-decision. Um, on the From the 13th of August, the French first and second armies advanced very steadily, cautiously into um, Lorraine. Uh, they were firmly controlled by Joffre and told exactly how quickly to advance in a way that the Germans never did. <coughs> Uh, they were faced by this Bavarian Sixth Army under Ruprecht. Uh, on the 6th of August, they had opened up their instructions from uh, German command, which was OHL, known as OHL. And actually were very disappointed because it instructed them to just mount a holding action, to grip and hold as much of the enemy as possible. And, and they were to uh, do that by retreating in front of the French and just using their heavier artillery to keep them at a distance. And that's what, exactly what happened for the next sort of seven days until the 20th. Then on the 20th, uh, the Bavarians opted to mount a counterattack from strongly prepared positions, a place called Saraburg, a place called Morange. And Morange in particular, it's some cliffs which gave a clear view of the French as they approached. The Bavarians drove both French armies back to the start line, straight almost within a day, back to the start line that they'd been on seven days before. In the case of the Second Army, they were driven well beyond the start line. Uh, what proved to be a, a premonition of what was going to come uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the next four years, instead of mobile artillery, the French 75 being the key weapon, it was the German heavy artillery that did the job. Um, the decision for the Bavarians was what to do next. Should they continue to advance or stick to the plan and grip the French? At this point, it's easier to say who didn't make the decision. Uh, Ruprecht, Moltke and Moltke's staff were all hesitant about authorising um, the Bavarians to continue. 
On the other hand, the ambitious Delman Singh and the commanders at the front wanted to press on. They wanted to be part of a, a huge victorious drive. They didn't want to just be gripping the French and sitting there. Their blood was up. Uh, in the end, Moltke gave no specific order. No decision was taken. It was a non-decision. The offence just carried on. And this was a, a very clear break with Schlieffen, because as far as Schlieffen was concerned, the left should just retreat and grip and hold. Um, there was some very important outcome, non-decision, because very quickly, the boot was firmly on the other foot. The Germans were held up straight away as the French dug in and built trenches. Trench warfare in the First World War started somewhere around the 27th, 28th of August over in the east, um, long before the Battle of the Marne. There was also a, a major unintended consequence because of the message that the French, that the Bavarian attack sent to the French, and we'll come to that later on. Now, between the 22nd to the 24th of August 1914, Karl von Berlow, the commander of the German Second Army, wins a qualified victory over Lanzarok, I, my, excuse my pronunciation, at Chaleroy. Again, you might want to correct my pronunciation there. In the course of which he panics when faced with a well-organised French resistance. Why is this so significant? Um, well, I think we're both equal on the pronunciation front because I consistently mispronounce Boulot as Bouloff. That uh, adds, but the French, the French guys are, are yes, it's, it's Lomazac and Shawa. But um, right, this is the second key decision, um, and Shawa is extraordinarily important. Um, it's um, and is understated in British um, telling of the story. Uh, this I can't remember the exact quote. But Churchill had written something like, the Germans missed their big opportunity at Sholwa. It just took them four years to realise. This is a huge three-day battle. Casualties are of July, 1st of July, 1916 proportions. Mons, which is being fought over one day, a few miles away, is a minor tiff in comparison. Uh, Bulov's second army turned south at Brussels. Um, here... Uh, he met the French Fifth Army under Lanzac head to head. And in the small villages in the valley around, the Valley of the Sombre around Shawa, Bulo gradually pushed the French back up onto the heights um, behind uh, the River Sombre. On Bulo's left, the German uh, Third Army under Hausen drove down the eastern bank of the Meuse Valley. And they actually got ahead of Bulo. He had, Hausen had an advanced guard at a place called Jive, where there's a crossing over the Mert back onto the other side. Had Hausen got that far, crossed at Jive, got behind the French, Lorenzac's Fifth Army would have been encircled. And that would have made a major shift in the balance of resources between the two sides. I think I'm right that the Fifth Army was the biggest single French army. Not for the only time, as we'll see later on, Bulo panicked. Using the coordinating powers he'd been granted, he ordered Klopp and Hausen to call in, to pull back and uh, pull in uh, alongside to defeat this French resistance. Klopp just ignored it. However, Hausen recalled his advance guard from Givet. I haven't quite reached Givet, but recalled the advance guard. They fought through the town of Dinan, but by the time they got alongside um, Bulo, actually the crisis had passed. By then, though, the French had escaped southeast unhindered, and the Third Army was still not there to catch them as they did so. 
Now, there's an irony here because actually Moltke used to run a, an exercise for young officers um, at the sort of war school in Berlin, um, which actually mapped out this exact scenario. And when he ran this exercise, 80% of students would say that it was correct for Hausen to come back and assist Bulow in that scenario. And Moltke would advise them that they were wrong, that the 20% who'd said otherwise were correct, that actually uh, you should follow your mission orders at all times and not be distracted by problems on either side. Hausen could have encircled and destroyed a major French army, but instead, Long Razak escaped. So we focused on the German leadership so far. What about the French high command while all this was going on? Oh, well, between the 23rd and the 25th, you hear the sound of screeching brakes and a hard U-turn. Well-established plans are thrown out the window and brand new ones established. They're pulled off the shelf, more strictly speaking. But if we have a desert island of decision-making and we've got to cast only one um, one decision to the desert island, this is the big one. Joffre was in the poo, frankly. His offensive strategy was in tatters, and he was looking at a calamity. There are a series of battles known collectively as the Battle of the Front. And in each case, the French had been thumped. The first and the second armies of this herd had been driven back by the Bavarian. The third and fourth had emerged from the Ardennes to be smashed by the Germans waiting for them. And Lorrazac was in retreat in front of Shawar. And to the left, he already had the news that the BEF was in retreat as well. <clears throat> so now we have to sort of, to understand this, we have to rewind and look briefly at Joffre's pre-war planning assumption, because one in particular had been now shown to be comprehensively wrong. They'd anticipated the German right-wing thrust, correct, but Joffre's belief was that it would go no further than the eastern side of the Meuse Valley, and he ignored specific intelligence that he received in 1940 to the contrary. Basically, they could see these huge railway stations being built in very tiny villages on the border uh, with uh, France and Belgium, which told them where these huge armies were going to be located because the platforms were way too long for civilians. Um, and uh, this told them that the, the extent and size of the German envelopment, uh, but Joffre ignored that. Um, when the war broke out and it became clear to Joffre, he compounded his error because as the Germans extended further west, he took it as good news because his planning assumption was that the two armies were of roughly equal size. And if the Germans were extending so far west, then they must be weak in the centre where he was planning to attack. They couldn't be strong everywhere. Now the Germans were extending west, but also giving him a damn good thrashing on the rest of the front. How could the Germans pull off this trick? Well. Moltke knew the arithmetic just as well uh, as Joffre. Uh, in 1912, he made a, a key decision to um, commit his reservists to the front line. This was not the norm at the time. Pre these are kind of previously conscripted soldiers who've now returned to civilian life. They're called back periodically for refresher training. Previously, reservists were not trusted in the front line. However, Moltke added 17 reserve divisions out of his total of 76 divisions in all. The French, on the other hand, in their front line, only had four 
reserve divisions. So this is how he engineered that small numerical advantage that he had at the start. That meant that Moltke could be strong in the West and strong in the centre as well. Why didn't Joffre do the same? Well, he not unreasonably had a pretty poor opinion of his own uh, reserve divisions because he had a smaller population pool to call them from. But he also assumed wrongly that Moltke shared his own low opinion, regardless of the intelligence that he heard to the contrary. Moltke, as I said, was right. Uh, actually, those reserve divisions performed admirably, and actually French reserve divisions were also um, to show that they could perform admirably as well. But this is also where the first decision, or non-decision, by the Bavarians kicks in. Because had Ruprecht and Darwinsingen opted for containment, or as some suggested, uh, not even uh, started the fight back at Morons and Sarabur, but carried on retreating, uh, Joffre might have been encouraged to continue with his offensive. But because he was thrashed across the front, he realised he'd got to make a complete change of direction. Joffre could now see that he was risking the encirclement of the entire French army. So faced with this potential catastrophe, what did he do? Well, it's his finest hour, <laughs> uh, without doubt. Uh, I mean, the rest of the war, he um, didn't show himself to be uh, um, a commander of any particular insight, but this was uh, his finest hour. He acted decisively. Uh, uh, he took very rapid action in the course of two or three days. He was helped by the highly centralised system that existed in France, whereas he had total control. Um, he drove or was driven from HQ to HQ, uh, issuing instructions, sacking people he didn't think was up to it. Um, right at the uh, right before the campaign on the Marne uh, kicked off, uh, he, he was driven 200 kilometres to get the reluctant British on side in the attack he proposed to do. He was helped by the, I suppose, by the military principle that as an offensive progresses, uh, the attack gets weaker and the defence gets stronger. Basically, the lines of communication get shorter for the defence and they get longer for the offence, and that tilts the balance in the favour of defence, which uh, and the attack tends to run out of steam. Uh, you just have to look at the German Barbarossa campaign in 1941 for uh, a very obvious example of that. But so uh, he was very decisive uh, in a way that von Moltke was never to be in the course of the campaign. So what changes did uh, Joffre make and how did he do it? Well, he issued what was known as General Instruction Number 2. Um, this placed the French on the defensive uh, across the entire front. Um, all his five armies were to hold and gradually draw back uh, and retreat uh, in front of the Germans. This was designed to buy time while he repositioned his forces. Um, he stripped the east, built up two new, new armies. So from his previously strong armies in Lorraine, the first, the second, the third, he took troops out, told them to dig in, and built two brand new armies in the centre, the ninth army under Foch, and uh, on the far left, uh, the sixth army under Minori, on the left of the BEF, just outside Paris. Uh, Minori's sixth army will feature a lot in our story. So remember Minori and the sixth army, they're out on the left, they're just outside Paris. Um, the only argument he had was over the exact position of the, uh, of the sixth army. Berthelot, his head of operation, 
argued for a shorter move to position the army just to the left of the French fifth and to the right of the BEF. That would leave this new army to attack the inside flank of the French, of the German advance. But, Bert, uh, but Berthelot was overruled by uh, Joffre, who said he wanted to go for the longer um, and therefore more risky movement to take the sixth, this new sixth army and place it as far left as he could and attack west to east into the right flank of the German, German army. Now, the irony of ironies, of course, is that this new sixth army under Manuri was made up predominantly, overwhelmingly, of reservists. But Joffre still had a problem, didn't he? The German advance was so rapid that he hadn't the time to assemble these new armies. Yeah. Uh, initially, Manuri's um, sixth army was to assemble around Amiens, north of Paris. Uh, and Kluck uh, actually uh, ran into part of it um, in his advance. He just didn't realise quite what he'd, he'd run into. Um, uh, and so didn't recognise that it was a potential threat. Um, Manuri then was forced to retreat and assemble further south. So Joffre needed a delaying action to buy some time for his reorganisation, didn't he? Yes, this is now the fourth of our 10 decisions and uh, uh, takes place on the 26th of August when there's a meeting at British HQ between Joffre, Lorzac and Sir John French. Now, Sir John French's mind was elsewhere because Le Cateau was being fought on the same day. Joffre ordered Lorzac to mount a, de mount a delaying action at Guise. Uh, Lorzac objected. He said it was too much to tackle the second army, German second army, head on while defending his flank uh, against the German first army uh, on his left. Joffre told him that unless he uh, did as he was ordered, he personally would have him taken out and shot. Lorzac uh, did mount the uh, action as ordered. He sought assistance from Haig, who was in command of the BEF's first corps alongside him. Haig initially agreed, but was overruled by uh, Sir John French, leaving Lorzac on his own. However, on the 29th and 30th of October, of uh, uh, August, uh, Lorzac mounted a textbook holding action. First of all, he defended against Kluck on his left before switching his forces over to defend against Bulow coming straight at him. The battle lasted a day and a half, and he held. The, he did such damage to the Germans that uh, Bulow was forced to rest for uh, a day afterwards. So the total delay caused by the Guise uh, battle was about three days, and as such is probably more significant in the uh, outcome of the campaign than ever Liège was. So would you say that the... Would you say that the Guise Saint Quentin operation appears to represent a clear line in the in the sand when you look at the events of August September 1914? Yes, it does. Um, up to now, we've been following the initial German thrust. We've seen the German uh, drive through Belgium and into France, uh, and we've seen the main French reaction to that. You could call this the frontiers stage, if you like, although the uh, in the official definition of the Battle of the Frontiers, Guise is not included. Um, the second stage, which is from here on in, um, is really all about the, the Marne, the lead-ups and the, the battle itself. Joffre has reset his strategy. He's delayed the Germans and he's built a new army outside Paris. The retreat has continued, but he's biding his time while he repositions his forces. They're not being routed. 
it's an orderly retreat. Joffre's idea originally in his new strategy had been to fight on the, the line of the Seine. What happens is they, they retreat from sort of river to river, if you like. Uh, but as they weren't ready to fight on the Seine, they decided to opt to fight on the next river back, which was the Marne. For the second part of the story, um, our attention was switched back to the German and the lead up to the Battle of the Marne. After Scholwar and Lakata, the German right wing marches confidently south. Mistakenly, they think they've won the war. They're in pursuit mode of a beaten enemy, or so they think. But they've got problems. They've got problems with communication, problems with fatigue, and problems with Moltke's lack of operational grip. And because the next phase focuses on the, the lead up to the Marne and the battle itself, uh, then I think we'll stop there and we'll pick up the story in the next episode, Tom. I think that's a very good place to stop and join us for the second episode, which is available now. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.